worldwide in this century, there will be one billion deaths. So uh, we have to keep talking about this issue because so many people are suffering and dying preventable deaths uh, due to tobacco dependence. Hello and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School Policy Cast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and you can subscribe to us on iTunes or elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. You can also find us every week in Boston Globe Opinion and on Twitter at PolicyCast. Today we're joined by Dr. Howard Coe, a professor at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, as well as here at the Kennedy School, who previously served as the Assistant Secretary for Health for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Dr. Coe, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Matt. So I think there's a popular perception out there that uh, the fight against tobacco was something that was waged in the 80s and 90s and all but one in the 2000s. you think we're we might be resting on our laurels a little bit a little bit early. That's correct. We've made tremendous progress on tobacco control in this country, but the problem is far from solved. And these days we have to keep reminding people that this is still the number one preventable cause of death in this country and around the world. Over half a million deaths a year in this country. It's projected that worldwide in this century there will be one billion deaths. I mean there's no other condition that reaches those Uh, extraordinary figures. So uh, we have to keep talking about this issue because so many people are suffering and dying preventable deaths uh, due to tobacco dependence. I think I read that it was uh, about 1,200 a day are dying here in the United States. That's correct. Right Now, if if that's the case, are these just the legacy effects of the people who had been smoking for 40 years, you know, started when they were in their teens in the 60s and now it's catching up to them? Well, we still have young people trying cigarettes uh, every day, several thousand a day, in fact, start for the first time. Two years ago, Matt, I had the great pleasure of being at the White House when the 50th anniversary of the landmark Surgeon General's report uh, was celebrated. And it was noted at that time that in the past 50 years, from 1964 to 2014, some 8 million lives were saved because of tobacco control and public health. So that was the good news. But it was also projected that some 5.6 million kids would go on to die from tobacco-related diseases unless we accelerated progress in tobacco control. So that's the challenge in front of us. Mm-hmm. And what are the, the main challenges in terms of how you, how you approach fighting this? Well, tragically, for decades, the industry has been successful at marketing and selling a product that we now sadly know is addictive. And they've done that, they've done that by glamorizing and normalizing a deadly and addictive product. So the strategy for decades has been to de-normalize and de-glamorize this product, and we're making steady progress. Uh, It used to be acceptable, for example, that you go into a restaurant and everybody was smoking, and now it's increasingly acceptable that clean air should be the norm. Uh, We have progress in many other sites that tobacco use should should not be the norm, that health should be the norm. So it's happening site by site, place by place. We're making slow but steady progress, and we have to keep the momentum going. Otherwise, too many lives will be lost. It seems like a lot of that progress is, and maybe this speaks to the misconception out there about this being a solved issue, 
Um, but it seems that a lot of the steps that you might logically take have been taken. Um, you know, you see the advertising uh, for, for tobacco products is far, far reduced. Um, the ability for companies to market to, to kids um, and even the ability to smoke in public places, some, some places even outdoors. Um, what, what other things can we, we actually attack in, in going after this problem? Well, sadly, this epidemic has uh, moved into populations that are bearing disproportionate burdens. So even though the adult smoking rate is about 17% or a little less, some 40 million smokers in the United States still exist. Well, around the world, we have about a billion smokers or more. And increasingly, we're seeing tobacco use in poor populations, in people with lower educational attainment, people who are on Medicaid here in the United States, people with behavioral health problems, substance abuse issues, uh, mental health issues uh, are bearing a, a tremendous burden with respect to tobacco use and misuse. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we need to tackle all these problems and, and help people be tobacco free. Mm -hmm. So one of the uh, the ways that we've gone after tobacco traditionally has been to uh, implement taxes on cigarettes, for instance. Um, there's this common thing uh, people like to call uh, state-sanctioned lotteries the poor tax because they're the chief consumers of lottery tickets. For tobacco now, cigarette use is largely correlated with socioeconomic status. Um, are we in danger of putting the people who are at most risk um, at a disadvantage because of this taxes like that? Well, low-income people who, who use cigarettes are at a disadvantage for getting preventable illness. So we need to do everything we can to make tobacco use not the norm anymore. And um, in fact, if you ask smokers, do you like using tobacco? Would you like to quit the vast majority will tell you that they know they are hooked and they want to stop, but they can't. That's how powerful the addiction is. So raising the price has been a well-researched strategy for quite a while. And if I can say uh, every state has raised uh, cigarette taxes over the last number of years, and this is a strategy used by both sides of the aisle. One of the frustrations for the public health movement is that when tobacco taxes are raised, it, it's best to use those generated funds for public health and for tobacco control. But more often than not, those funds are diverted away for other purposes. So if we could raise cigarette taxes but use that added money for tobacco control and to protect kids, then I think uh, we, we could be making much more progress. In the last few years, one of the more um, controversial additions to this uh, discussion has been the advent of the e-cigarette. Um, now, this uh, they're not actually cigarettes. Um, all they are are electronic devices that have a mixture of propylene glycol, which is kind of the, it's the same stuff that they use in smoke machines, in concert venues, that kind of thing, uh, as well as nicotine. Um, now, as I said, it, it's a pretty controversial subject. Um, what, what do we actually know about e-cigarettes right well, now? Well, that's a great question and a very timely question. So right now, e-cigarettes are very much a double-edged sword. It's possible that use of e-cigarettes could help smokers go down the road of what we call harm reduction and then ultimately use it as a cessation device. And so that's the public health hope for the future. But the flip side of uh, e-cigarettes is that it represents a new agent for potential addiction, particularly for kids. And there's been some new, very disturbing research just released that the use of e-cigarettes for high school kids in this country has increased tenfold 
from 2011 to 2015. This is, these are new figures that have been just released. So some 16% of high school kids now have used e-cigarettes, and that number was 1.5% only five, six years ago. Mm-hmm. So here we have never users, kids, using a new nicotine delivery device uh, we know this has a negative impact on uh, the developing brain in adolescence. Uh, we know it's potentially addictive. And then the most disturbing part of all, Matt, is that to date these products are not regulated at the federal level. So we're all waiting uh, for that proposed rule that was put up by the FDA now two years ago to be finalized so we can protect kids uh, from e-cigarette exposure as well as overall tobacco exposure. I think we all know nicotine is extremely addictive, um, but there are a lot of things in cigarettes and all tobacco products that are carcinogenic and bad for your health. Um, Is there something about nicotine itself that is dangerous to the human body other than being addictive? Well, we mentioned it's already addictive, and it's particularly a a danger, therefore, for adolescents and uh, kids whose brains have not totally matured uh, anatomically. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is a a threat to cardiovascular health, so uh, there are some uh, cardiovascular outcomes that that we need to be concerned about as uh, medical professionals. It's, of course, a a threat for pregnant women. And uh, then we have a situation with e-cigarettes where young kids have uh, been involved in unintentional poisonings because they get a hold of this Uh, cartridge that contains the uh, propylene glycol and the nicotine. And then there are all these ingredients in e-cigarettes that we have uh, no idea exactly uh, what the contents are, uh, again, because they're not required by regulation to report to anybody. So we're hoping some of this can be solved uh, when the proposed rule is finalized by the FDA. Mm-hmm. This has been a, uh, a tool that a lot of smokers have used to get away from uh, tobacco use. Is that something that you know the public health community should be celebrating? This is uh, where the hope is for e-cigarettes and a tremendous global discussion about the potential for e-cigarettes to be a a so-called harm reduction tool. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the United Kingdom has come out, uh, one part of the public health uh, service of uh, England, the so-called public health England, has just come out with a document saying they see great potential for e-cigarettes as uh, a harm reduction device. But then the people on the opposing side would say, well, where's the evidence for that, that there is potential, but so far we we just see rising rates of use in kids uh, without evidence that it's a successful cessation aid in rigorous trials so far. So that's a debate until we get more information, and we need to stay open-minded, but also, in my view, uh, regulate uh, these agents as soon as possible and protect kids until we're getting better science. Now, uh, I... One figure that I did see was that in 2014, there was the largest drop-off in cigarette use by kids under the age of 18. Now, that that seems to be a good sign. Could the rise of e-cigarettes possibly have something to do with that? That's a great question and a very uh, fascinating point to explore. Uh, we know that tobacco comes in all shapes and forms, so it's not just conventional c- cigarettes. There's also cigars and roll your own and smokeless tobacco, which is a big problem for high school boys in particular. And uh, so we we know that both combustible tobacco and so-called smokeless tobacco are of great concern for human health. Uh, we also like to point out that smokeless does not mean harmless. So we have to look at 
the whole universe of tobacco products and be just very, very concerned about its continued potential to addict, addict young people and cause mm-hmm. just uh, agonizing outcomes in terms of health for millions around the world. Uh, the smokeless tobacco piece actually hit Major League Baseball this year. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Boston, Los Angeles, and San Francisco all banned the use of uh, smokeless tobacco in these in in the ballparks in their cities. Um, can you describe what what was the effort behind making that happen, and what's the what's the logic there? So uh, recently, San Francisco became the first city to ban use of smokeless tobacco in their Major League Baseball stadium. And the rationale was that young boys idolize their sports heroes. And when they see Major League Baseball players using smokeless in the stadium or on televised games, they tend to emulate that behavior. So the San Francisco mayor was the first to make uh, their ballpark completely tobacco-free, not just smoke-free. And then we were very proud when Boston Mayor Marty Walsh became the the second mayor to make uh, the baseball stadium here, Fenway Park, tobacco-free. So in fact, that new uh, regulation just started a couple weeks ago. Uh, Here we are in April, and opening day was uh, uh, just the week before last. And then um, New York, Chicago, and uh, the whole state of California may be following suit. So again, this is trying to change the norm back to a tobacco-free norm. Mm-hmm. And when you talk to baseball players who have lost their friends and colleagues because of oral cancer, which can be devastating, uh, when you talk to young boys who have found themselves hooked on smokeless tobacco, uh, when um, they realize that in hindsight that that was not a, a good decision for them, th- these are all fronts on the tobacco wars, if you will, and we need we need to get pushing on all of them. I think the idea of stopping uh, smoking in public places was predicated on this idea of, uh, of secondhand smoking being a danger to people all around you. Um, obviously, that's not the case with smokeless tobacco. Uh, do you have any uh, any words for people who might think that, oh, this is this is taking it too far. I just want to go to the ballpark and, you know, it's my own body. I want to do what I want, that kind of thing. Well, I think I keep going back to uh, what, what should be the norm here? What should be the social norm? Which, and the, if you talk to the tobacco industry, they uh, have always promoted and glamorized and normalized this behavior, which is now sadly recognized as an addiction, uh, we need to reclaim health as the norm. And uh, that will make a big difference for people, not only in our country, but people around the world. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, there's another movement afoot, and it's actually hitting home here in Massachusetts very recently to bring the age to buy cigarettes uh, to 21. Where is that movement where did it come from, and, and where's it headed? Well, ironically, that movement started here in Massachusetts in, in uh, the town level, and then it's caught fire, literally, <laughs> uh, in various places around the country. Uh, recently, Hawaii became the first state to raise the age of purchase of tobacco in that state to 21, and other states are now looking into it. We want that effort to proceed here in the state and also around the country because the Institute of Medicine has put out a pretty definitive report modeling what would happen if the age of purchase was raised from 18 to 21. And this is another way to keep uh, tobacco 
out of the reach of adolescents until they're old enough to make an informed choice for themselves. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we're hoping that that proposal will continue to move forward. Obviously, uh, having the age be 18 hasn't completely stopped kids from accessing cigarettes. Uh, Does raising it three years really have that much of an impact? Well, as I mentioned, the Institute of Medicine did a fairly thorough study of this, and they used uh, modeling uh, that was uh, very well accepted by uh, the research community, and their conclusion was fairly strong that this would make an impact for young people and uh, delay initiation. Uh, we, we all know that if you don't use tobacco when you're a teenage a teenager, you're pretty unlikely to use it from age 20 or 21 on. So um, this was an effort now that's gaining traction for those reasons. Hmm. So uh, you mentioned earlier that in the 21st century, tobacco will claim a billion lives. That's an astounding figure. Of course, that stretches well beyond the borders of the United States. That's an international problem. How are these issues being taken care of on an international level? Great question. So we continue to learn from our colleagues around the world about how to address this issue. Uh, One major example is China, where there are as many smokers in that country as there are people in the United States. So uh, they are trying very hard to establish smoke-free places. In fact, when I was assistant secretary, I went to Beijing a couple of times to help promote the concept of smoke-free workplaces. And so that was a, a fascinating uh, endeavor. Uh, we see leaders uh, in places like uh, Australia. They've introduced a concept called plain packaging, where all their cigarettes are heavily um, covered with uh, graphic warning labels, and they take all marketing aspects of, of, uh, of the packaging on cigarettes out. And that's, uh, of course, faced tremendous legal challenges, but Australia has uh, prevailed to date. And then uh, in 2004, Ireland was the first country to make its entire country smoke-free in public places. That meant restaurants and pubs, which, which at the time was inconceivable but when you stop and think about it again, the, the industry has told Ireland and other places around the world for, for decades that if you go into a pub, you should expect to see cigarette smoke. So uh, that country took the lead, and now we have several dozen countries uh, uh, 12 years later who are completely smoke-free. In our country, the United States, about half of our states are smoke-free. The other half are not, so we still have a ways to go. At the same time right now, another movement is is sweeping across this country, at least, and that's for the legalization of marijuana. Um, Obviously, the idea of introducing another substance that is uh, potentially harmful, uh, that people smoke, um, how is that intersecting with the anti-tobacco movement? Well, uh, there are many ways to look at those issues. Uh, One question that's been raised is that there's a phrase called big tobacco because tobacco is big business. Uh, many of us in the public health community are concerned that, that marijuana is also a, a big, big business. And that's an issue that's challenging uh, every state in the country right now. But from the broad public health point of view, we, we're concerned about how do we address yet another potentially addictive substance. We, we, you know, we're, we have challenges with uh, tobacco. We have overwhelming challenges right now with opioids that, that we hear about in the news just about every day mm-hmm. uh, with, with heroin. And so how we address all these issues has got to be done uh, very, very carefully. 
uh, with upholding public health as the uh, major priority here. Mm -hmm. Well, Dr. Howard Coe is a professor at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and here at the Kennedy School. Dr. Coe, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Matt. HKS PolicyCast is produced by Matt Cadwallader and Molly Lanzarota. Special thanks to those who help get us out there every week, including Catherine Serafin at Harvard Public Affairs and Ellen Clegg and Laura Colarusso at the Boston Globe. And to you for listening in. See you next week. You've been listening to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. You can subscribe to PolicyCast on iTunes, Stitcher, and elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. And let us know what you think on Twitter, at PolicyCast.